Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello folks, thanks for tuning in and welcome along to episode number six of the Digital Bulletin Podcast. We hope in these troubled times that familiarity will bring you some comfort. So joining me today, as ever, we have Digital Bulletin Content Director James Henderson. Hello. And CEO Romilly Broad. Good day. I was going to say good morning, but anyone could be listening at any time. Exactly. The uniqueness of a podcast, eh? That is, uh, <laughs> yeah. how are we doing on this fine sp- spring? Is it spring yet? It almost, isn't almost. it? Almost. But yeah. does it even matter no. these days as we face the challenges of global <laughs> pandemics? I mean, it's everything is a bit surreal, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, not, not bad. It seems slightly strange. The last time we were on about five weeks ago, coronavirus was, was on the agenda, but... It, it really was this sort of secondary thing we were wondering out loud whether MWC might might be cancelled. <laughs> like the idea that it, it could have gone ahead now is just obviously ridiculous. So yeah, we were, you know I'm thinking back to simpler days when it was just a possibility that we might cancel a, a big event. You know, it was a bit of a footnote, really, wasn't it? It was yeah, kind of a it was the a first thing big one, was, I think. Yeah. Yeah, things are very different now, and obviously we're gonna um, we're gonna touch on that in, in today's episode. Listener, of course, we we, we cannot avoid it. So yeah, c- coming up, we we will um, we will talk more about the coronavirus because obviously what everybody needs is more people spouting their unqualified opinions on a global pandemic. Definitely, um, we'll also discuss our recently published case study on Thames Water and hear from the chief technology officer of enterprise blockchain firm R three. But first, some news. Setting aside COVID-19 for a minute, there's still been plenty of activity in the business tech world. We've seen the Pentagon asking for court permission to revisit the $10 billion cloud contract it awarded to Microsoft last year. Now, the Project Jedi saga looks like it won't be coming to a conclusion anytime soon, which is exactly what primary antagonist AWS would like. It's been a busy month in the container space. VMware revealed a major overhaul of its products earlier in March. AWS launched a new operating system for container apps and Containership, one of the earliest container management startups had its assets snared by Hitachi Vitara and HPE has made its own container platform live, so lots going on there. In other news, the fines have been totting up for Apple, $500 million for slowing down the performance of old devices and $1.2 billion for illegally restricting how wholesalers sell its products. Now, while elsewhere we've seen Nokia appoint a new CEO, Volkswagen pitching software that it claims will stop car accidents by 2050. And India lifting a ban on crypto trading. Now you can find a full roundup of the reporting on these stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbullet.in. But now we're going to go where everybody has been before us. (laughs) Coronavirus, technology, everybody's lives. There's no script here. We're just going to roll with it and try and make sense of what on earth is going on at the moment. Guys, this this is probably going to be one of the last times we actually sit down face to face, certainly for a few weeks, a few months. yeah i mean so like everybody else we have to make decisions about what we do and we're kind of lucky there are so many businesses out there that are not digital media companies fundamentally that's what we are which means when we decide to work from home which we have decided to do um as of very soon um we can still operate and we you know we we can still do what we do um uh, so I'm completely distracted by someone 
setting off a micro- microwave. <laughs> the world mo- the world carries on, um, you know. The world the world rotates on its axis. It continues to go on. People still cooking microwavable meals. People still need to eat, right? Yes. And so uh, our, we're lucky because people still need to consume information. The world doesn't stop. People work from home, but they're still working, and that's what we'll be doing. Um, and but it's, it's such a strange place to be because obviously for us our priorities are exactly the same as everyone else and fundamentally that means keeping ourselves safe and thinking about our families and and all of those things that these things that are all always much more important right yeah james um, how are you feeling just, uh, just a general like thing to get started how, how are you feeling yeah, about? i mean it's we're living in pretty extraordinary times aren't we and yeah. um it's everything is changing at such a fast pace that even you know by the time people listen to this you know the, things will inevitably have moved on it's yeah it's, i think rom's right you know we are in a quite a privileged position i suppose that we've been told you know work from home and isolate and stuff like that but for example my sister works in the in the health service right she's a a and e nurse i mean you're not <laughs> you know you talk about being at the coal face of stuff um you know my brother works in construction these are not jobs that can just be done from home and, and stuff like that so yeah i mean it's it's a, it, it is a worrying time, but you know I'd, I'd come back to it and say that actually, f- for people like us, it's um, we we have the the privilege of, of being able to make those decisions work from home and yeah. have technology tools where we can still speak daily and stuff like that. So it's bad, but you know you always have to consider that other people are in a much worse position. Exactly, and I think you know this is impacting everybody. It's un- sort of kind of unprecedented in that sense. We we have to try and focus on the the tech aspects of it, and let's talk a bit more about this this remote working thing that many people who've never done that before are having to do right now do you think first of all businesses do you think businesses are ready to embrace remote working so suddenly do you think the tech is in place is what i'm saying we, we know collaboration tools are used by businesses but this is going to test mm. those strategies isn't it this, yeah. this sudden move to remote working so i think the answer to that question is yes and no yeah. so are the tools there yes yes they are and they've been around for a long time i mean uh, and and some of the big players are obviously um helping with that so google's announced it's it's hangouts uh, premium stuff is is going to be free up until july i think and i suspect we will be leveraging that um and various other things that are that are happening for for some of the common platforms uh, microsoft teams famously broke as soon as uh, this week started and the, the volume of traffic went up but i think it was fixed really quickly so that the tools are there most the tools com- are there, but it clearly is it's a challenge even for the even for the providers yeah. of these tools, isn't it? Because they yeah. it's it's, yeah. it's a suddenly a huge leap in the amount. They, of it, it, yeah. Also, you, you say it got fixed. I mean, at, I think it was nine a.m. GMT. It broke, but also broke yesterday afternoon as well. Yeah. They, so they got it back up working, but obviously they're they're, they're going to have they're going to see the number of people the number of people and number of companies fly up, and their own infrastructure might not be ready to to be able to cope with, with the demand. So. It's going to be a huge, huge challenge. Whether you use Teams or Slack or, or or any of these sort of various work collaboration tools, it's going to be a challenge for for the people using them for the first time to to sort of get into the habit of that and seeing how they work. But it's also going to be a challenge for for the the companies who own these because yeah. I don't think I don't think that they would ever have been able to prepare for for such an increase in in, in their usage. So, yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you about the, the people, the employees themselves, because. You know, most companies have tools like this now. Some some workers, you know, really embrace them and, and engage them and, and use them. Obviously, others are a bit more reticent to sort of use them. 
there's no real choice now, is there? Yeah, so that's uh, that's the no part of my response there before, which was that the, the tools are there, but tools are tools. And in the end, a tool is only good as the person on the end of it and how well equipped they are to, to use it. Now, we're lucky because we, uh, we're kind of familiar with working in this way uh, and lots of other um, companies of our sort of type are, are fine. But a lot of uh, enterprises, especially really big ones, uh, this is going to be quite difficult, I suspect, because it's not just a technology problem, it's a training problem. And as anyone who knows uh, or has experience working from home for any length of time, and I, I know I have, the it's not technology that's the problem, it never is. It's how do you maintain um, the discipline that means you can remain productive and it, it's, it's actually really, really quite hard, mm-hmm. especially if you've got a family. Lots of issues potentially arising. James, we, we know that, you know, we've, we've, we hear a lot of leaders in industry talking about the, the shift to like new ways of working. And, and in a way, do you think this, this pandemic is kind of speeding that up and yeah. m- might even see a revolution in the way we work? And once, once coronavirus is the thing of the past in yeah. you know, however many years. I, I think so. I mean, we've, we've for, for such a long time read and spoken about you know some of the benefits of working from home and those are from you know people not wasting hours and hours a week commuting or the environmental damage that millions of people going from you know out in the country to to city centers has um so i i I think that even though that there were clear benefits People that, in my opinion, anyway, the vast, vast majority of companies always been reticent to sort of empower their employees and, and trust them to work from home. Um, there's, there, there's always, certainly in this country, anyway, there seems to have always been a distrust of working from home. Like people, you know, skive off or not, or not do what they're what they're supposed to do. Obviously, this, you know, takes the power away from 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 those employees, whoever, whoever they may be, and, and forces people to, to work from home. Um, and, and I think it will be probably for a concerted period of time as well. Um, so I think in answer to your question, yeah, we certainly could do. If, if companies see that actually there's not a huge uh, downtick in, in terms of uh, the, the work that's been done or, or productivity, as long as we don't see huge shifts there, then actually it could become the new normal or, it's sort of, or certainly it, it will be a, a, a large scale use case that actually working from home is a viable thing uh, it is possible for people to do and actually people aren't just going to skive off because most people don't do that most people take their work quite seriously yeah we'll, we'll see we'll see how it plays out ultimately let's move on to a sort of another angle on this and um we, we know that healthcare systems around the world are obviously under enormous pressure and strain from just the scale of of, of this outbreak rom you've been looking at some some and you've been speaking to some people in in the healthcare industry directly and mm-hmm. and and looking at how different systems and different technologies in different sort of areas of the world, are, 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 how are they dealing with this problem? It's, it's, it's an enormous issue, isn't it? Yeah, it is absolutely. And there's, there's a, a, a raft of different challenges that they're, that they're facing. If we look at it just through the, the prism of technology, um, one of the things, I, you know, I, I just happen to have been spending a lot of time um, talking to CIOs of, of healthcare organisations um, in Europe and in the States recently. And one of the very common things that seems to be true is that uh, the healthcare system as a whole, however it's governed, has uh, similarly fragmented, um, like a, a jigsaw of different platforms. And that's um, especially true in the States where 
you have got a, a fundamentally a for-profit healthcare system where you've got lots of players in the marketplace competing with each other. And what they do because they're competitive is don't really give too much away to anyone else. There are the, the integrations between these systems are not great. And so there are, there's all, all sorts of efforts going on to, to try to address the challenge of data sharing in particular between all these different systems, um, but we're not there yet. And so that's going to be something that becomes um, uh, an exacerbated problem, it would appear, um, as part of this. Now, if we look here in the UK where we've got a much more uh, obviously socialized system with, in theory, in principle at least, um, a more centralized command and control kind of structure, then you would imagine that, that what that should mean is that there's a lot more commonality in terms of the systems that are being deployed around the country. Unfortunately, that's just not true. And that dates back to the 1990s when uh, the government of the time decided to uh, change the way this worked. They felt that it was inefficient to have procurement on a national level like that. Uh, and and introduced instead uh, a marketplace for these sorts of services and said, look, on a much more local level, people who are commissioning these things, whether it's on a hospital by hospital basis or uh, more regionally, you get to make the decisions. You go and do your procurement. You get the systems that you want. A lot of what happened, therefore, is that American healthcare systems providers filled those gaps by and large. There's you know one or two big players actually that provide most of those systems, and so even in the UK where you've got a very centralised system, you've still got a fragmented picture of legacy systems. In this time, we've seen we've seen leaders you know, in politics and business having to make decisions that you know would never have been imaginable. Do you, do you think it's now time for private healthcare companies to maybe? look at the greater good here and we've seen in the UK certainly we've seen um, damaging sort of headlines around private healthcare companies making money from the NHS and mm. that's really been brought into sharp focus hasn't it do, do, you, do you believe there's a possibility that there could be um, some form of compromise here I think most people I don't know I mean we're guessing really but yeah. I think most private organisations are doing absolutely the right thing you know they are working to to try and address um these problems in a collaborative way, I, I think. But there are outlying issues. You know, there was a major headline in Germany just um, a couple of days ago, where a one of many companies that are trying to develop a, a serviceable vaccine quickly um, was offered a billion dollars by by Donald Trump yeah. to secure that exclusively for the United States, which is the exact <laughs> diametric opposite of what anybody should be doing now. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised that uh, that's the kind of way that Donald Trump might behave in an election year. But yeah. um, I think the response to that was fairly robust from the from the Germans. And so, but by but by and large, I think you know you, you can see everybody acting in a in a spirit of uh, of of common good. And that's gone so far as obviously in Spain they the government has simply co-opted the private healthcare system yes. <laughs> right. you're, you're not <laughs> We're private anymore uh, that's that yeah we need your bet yeah so there are examples of it actually collaboration is 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 an interesting sort of segue into our next topic which is communications and misinformation around the coronavirus james we, we know this is the first virus to go viral someone said in our eyes there is so much information out there obviously so much false information out there as well um We've seen actually today an update on the story where the biggest tech companies, Facebook, Twitter, Google, that they've sort of released a joint statement of like committing themselves to working together to try and um, 
streamline the messaging, I guess, around yep. around the coronavirus and working with health agencies and departments yep. all around the world to try and to try and solve this issue. In in this, we we know how much power these guys have. We talk about it all the time. How how much responsibility do they have in this situation? Those companies? Well, absolutely massive. Because in in we always say in some ways they are more powerful than the governments. People pay more heed to the stuff they see on social media than they do governments coming out and making statements. Right. So they it, it's absolutely incumbent on them that the, the messaging is correct. That we we cannot have the the spread for example of fake news like we've seen in, in past elections or, or referendums um yeah they have to do everything in their in their power to make sure that the messaging is as simple as possible it's as accurate as as possible um and they're going to have to put you know huge amounts of, of resource in, into that um for for example we know that d- despite the fact that we are in in this sort of scenario where we all have to club together there's still going to be people out there who who use it for their their own their own means which are not necessarily positive for example we know already that that hackers are, t- are targeting hospital and healthcare systems for example so there's some there are some really bad people out there who will use this to their own benefit whether it's the the spread of fake news or or, or cyber attacks uh, on on those sorts of organizations so they have a real moral societal obligation to get to, together and, and do the absolute best for, for society in general. Yeah, it's interesting isn't it? because you know they don't actually have any obligation because they're, they're private companies. But it, it, the way the world is today, yeah, it's almost inevitable that they, they do. They have to, and actually, you know, I'm sure there's no doubt that they those companies will be you know some of the first organisations or bodies that the government will, you know will be speaking to in the ASIN with such is their power. Um, and and we we have to recognise that to say that you know they're just technology they're not really technology companies at all people a lot of people base their almost lives around this and sometimes it's the only place where they get any of their information so mm. it absolutely has to be accurate yeah and there's and there's a very important the, the the communication piece and how you control it is is absolutely critical to how com- countries everywhere are going to be able to respond to this because. Um, and a really important factor is the the primary objective of of every strategy being employed in every country is not to stop the virus because that's impossible. It's to manage uh, manage it. Ultimately, the endpoint of this virus is where you develop herd immunity, which is sixty percent or more of the population is uh, has had it and they're immune, and therefore it becomes controllable in the same way that. That, that flu is just on a seasonal basis, right? That's that's normal. You want to get to that point. The, the the crisis is because it's so contagious, it's growing so fast that it's overwhelming the ability of any health system to, to manage it. And so you're trying to slow it down. Now, the problem is, if you've got an overwhelmed health system, you get just as many deaths of people who now can't get operations or can't get treated for other things or drive their car into a tree and can't get seen quick enough. And these secondary deaths are a major concern. And a principal contributor to that problem is people panicking and doing really dumb things. And to bring this back to the point, you're, you're saying this is because there is a sort of overwhelming amount of kind of panic-based sort of hysteria. And social media, media etc., has got a big part to play in there. Huge, yeah, it fuels it. So, yeah, as, as, as James, as somebody who is looking for information about the current, like everybody mm-hmm. else in the world at the moment, do you, do you feel satisfied that you're able to get that information? Not or? really, but but you know, there's so much noise around it. And there's so much distrust almost of politicians, even when they're coming out and saying stuff like, do you, do you really trust what Boris Johnson or Donald Trump says? I don't. 
So who who are you actually listening to? Who actually can you believe? So it's a huge problem. I, I don't know the answer to it because there's so much information out there. I mean, this talks to a wider societal problem about there's too much information, there's too much noise. <laughs> I don't know how to cut through it. And then answer to your question, no, I've got no idea what we should be doing. I, I hear from one... The thing is, you have healthcare professionals, hugely talented, some of the best minds in the world who disagree about what is the, the, the best way. Do, do you go for the herd immunity? Do, do you lock up? So how, is, how am I, as a layperson, supposed to really be satisfied that I have the best information at my fingertips and understand it? when even the best healthcare professionals in the world disagree. Mm. You know, and you have to wonder what their political bias is and, and, and what their business interest is too. No, I've got no idea. <laughs> so, you know. And in terms of social media, I think it's, it's one of its great strengths, you know, giving people a platform, giving people a voice mm. in this instance is probably its weakness because, 100%. and, and, and the, the, the difference here is that everybody on social media is invested in this somehow. It's not like sport or well, something else. Like every, everybody probably has is forming opinions right. and is listening to everybody else, and it, it's creating this this noise where it's almost impossible. And, and another thing is that this the situation is changing hourly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and therefore, you know, what someone thought a day ago of is course. probably completely irrelevant and not supported by any kind of basis of fact today. Yeah. So well, you know, yeah. we're yeah. I mean. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna have to move on at well, some yeah, point. We're um, gonna have to move on, and we've got other yeah. things to talk about. But it's the um, science, we need to follow the science. By the way, you don't get any of that on social media. No. You just don't. If you want, actually want to know what's going on, how to make a good decision, skip the social media bit and go to the hard data and listen to people who are commenting on that. It takes more effort, but do it. It, it does take. Well, and one last point I make. Obviously, in, in this time where we're self-isolating and. Every, everything's shut, there's no leisure activities. People will more and more congregate towards social media because it's one of the last things left that you can do. Mm. So actually, the, the, the problem inevitably will, will get worse. Yeah. We'll, see. well, that's a nice positive. Well, very cheery, yeah, sorry. <laughs> right, that's it. I'm drawing. <laughs> I'm pulling the curtains across there. Um, after a conveniently placed sting promoting our social media channels, we will be back and ready to explore the relative sanctuary of Thames Water and the utilities industry. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at digi underscore bulletin on Twitter. Our case study section this month sees us reflect on our cover story from the March edition of the Digital Bulletin magazine, Thames Water and the tech initiatives led by CIO Tony McCandless. Demanding stakeholders and customers, along with strict regulations, mean the utilities industry might not appear at first to be the perfect arena for technology excellence, but even this sector is seeing some fairly transformative work when it comes to IT and product development. McCandless joined Thames Water in 2017 and has since completed an end-use compute refresh, app remediations, the rollout of a new CRM and billing platform, among many other things. Over the next five years, the UK's biggest water company is putting a further £1 billion behind digital initiatives. Here is the CIO himself to tell us more. Spend £1 billion over the next five years, it is a lot of money. Um, put it in context, Thames runs 139,000 kilometres of water and waste network, which would go around the world three and a half times. That is four times the amount of assets that the whole of Scottish water run an entire country on. We have got to invest in technology inside that network in order to know what's going on with it. Where is water flowing? What are pressures? How are the pipes in there? How are the sewage treatment works? And bring that together in a data model 
that allows us to be more proactive than reactive. So if we can know what's going on within our networks before they become issues, hopefully we can stop bursts, we can stop flooding for people, we can you know, contribute to cutting down on environmental pollution issues. And then other technologies that we look at are things like just now we generate 20% of our own power. We want to really try and get that as far as we possibly can and technology will be a critical part of it. Now, obviously, £1 billion sounds like a, a lot of money, guys, but do you think, you know, to those in technology, this kind of investment is now a necessity for companies like Thames Water? I don't know who wants to kick off on this. Um, yeah, is the answer to that. I mean, especially if you're a water company who probably has quite a big legacy, uh, you know, history going on. So that is, therefore, relatively expensive if, you, if you're tearing up a whole bunch of actually quite old stuff. Yep. Um, a big part of that budget, of course, is as we were talking about earlier on, it's not actually about the technology. It's about getting people to use new stuff, which has huge overheads in terms of uh, recruitment, in terms of training and all those other things. So and A big part yeah. of the, 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 the work McCandless has already overseen actually was involved Accenture, who, who featured obviously on this, on this project and an end use compute refresh it basically means equipping every single worker in Thames Water with a, com- a completely new way of working whether that's a new device or a new collaborative working tool like, like Microsoft Microsoft is, is, is part of, the, of, of this transformation so yeah it's, it's as much about people isn't it yeah 100% and he's talking about a multi-year spend as well so actually it breaks down to you know less per year um, that said uh, you know what what are the commercial benefits of that at the end of the day i mean it's a water companies utilities companies in this country anyway are kind of a strange beast in that they are uh businesses competitive in the marketplace like any other business while being a monopoly which kind of is one of those forces that that kind of guarantees that they end up becoming slower moving because there's just not as much incentive to do because they're in a monopoly they have to adhere to very strict Um, regulations yeah yeah exactly so it's interesting that we find in Thames Water and with Tony uh, this real dynamism there. And I think actually to, to deliver transformation at a company like Thames Water, you, you need someone like Tony, who, who is a no-nonsense kind of character, clearly very experienced, but also very um, adept at separating you know, a lot of noise. He, he wasn't one for talking about innovation or anything yeah. like that. He, he was one for talking about service delivery. That was his big message. And he, 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 he was keen to make the point that what the work they've achieved so far is only sort of step one of the process. Mm-hmm. Obviously, step two is now re- really making the most of the technologies that they've implemented and, and implementing new technologies around data and those kind of things to, to really um, streamline and, and help ultimately deliver a, a better service to, because it's all about customer service, a better service to, to the 15 million people. And I think um, he... I don't know, his leadership came through really strongly, I thought, in in the video yeah. and in, in the article. I think he's very well respected as a, as a technology leader, particularly within the company itself. So, yeah, no, obviously there's a lot more you can read on digitalbullet.in about that. Um, but this, this is all about data, isn't it? And if you, if you throw it forward, Rom, um, how, how successful do you think a, a data strategy can be for someone like Thames Water when you're managing a huge network of, um, you know, water things? Uh, <laughs> water things. Pipes, water things. sewage, you know, yeah. toilets. I mean, in a sense, this <laughs> Gathering of, data from, that, from yeah. that network is the only way to really feed a strategy that is going to be more efficient. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, you know, in a, in a sense, it's kind of related to the, to the healthcare kind of thing we were talking yeah. about where, you know, if, if a water company fails in its basic duties... People 
can die. <laughs> you know, yeah. it is that serious. Yeah. So how does uh, what role does data play in that? Well, it's it's massive. The primary number one opportunity for a utility company, uh, whether it's water or anything else, is the the deployment of technologies to to grow data and then on the on the back end obviously how to manage that and analyze it but the the obvious use case being in in water being iot um and leveraging uh stuff like lorawan i never know how to say that lorawan people say it differently um which is that's expanding rapidly around europe and and in the uk as well where you're looking at the ability to connect lots and lots of relatively simple um, devices over very large areas right. and to understand therefore if you're a water company uh, things like have we got contaminated water at any point in the system are we seeing a leak and knowing where that leak is and overall that means or it should mean quite quickly your costs are able to be managed down much more effectively and the service ultimately you're delivering to your end customer is, is going to be that much better. Yeah. One, one of the data challenges that I found really interesting that Tony spoke about was how the, the company manages to convert the knowledge that a lot of its staff have been there for many, many years, right at the beginning when Thames Waters was a very people-centric business like most businesses before technology took over, how to convert that knowledge and, and that data into something that Thames Waters could work with going forward when those people have retired. Because mm. I think... Yeah, you get that, don't you? You, you? you get individuals who have worked at companies for so long, you have this sort of trove of, of knowledge and information. People don't really have that anymore because technology has played such a big part. So I think, yeah, he, he spoke quite he spoke quite a lot about, about that challenge and how, how they managed to bring it into their own, quotes, data factory. As, as I said, like the strong message from this project throughout was, was, was the fact, you know, Tony wasn't really going to be, be talking about words like innovation and digital excellence, that kind of thing. For, for Thames Water, it is all simply about delivering the best experience to the 15 million customers around London and the Thames Valley, and, and he explains more in this clip. Our end customers are really critical to Thames. It's an interesting situation in that certainly in the UK and England and Wales, the water company's customers are bound to the region, so you can't choose necessarily where to go and get your water. And I know that irks some people, but it's kind of practical in that we own the assets that we deliver the service by, and therefore the customers take advantage of those assets. Someone needs to pull that together as a service. Thames is absolutely obsessed with customer service. It's one of the great things about being here. In previous roles, I've had to worry about quarterly sales cycles and profit and loss margin and all of these things. I don't have to worry about that here. What I focus on is getting value for money for Thames Water and its customers, and then trying to help our teams deliver great customer service. Right, guys, customer obsession. We hear it from pretty much everyone we speak to. This is a real example of that, isn't it? Because there's nothing between Thames Water and its customers. It has to, it has to just deliver, doesn't it? Yeah, in real time, at all times, yeah. with no interruptions ever. Yeah. And so actually, if you go back to the, the, the question of data that we were talking about, that is therefore representative of what it must do in the future to understand its customers better. 
do you, do you think we as consumers expect and, and maybe give give utilities companies a bit of a hard time when you consider the challenge that someone like Tony is trying to solve and the and, and this kind of service that we expect from them? Probably. I mean, the, the only time you would ever really have contact with them is when something yeah. goes wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and obviously, we're talking about, we spoke a little bit earlier in the podcast about sort of societal panic. Well, if you if your tap stops running, <laughs> or to, you know, that, that, you know, very, very quickly would, would turn into a huge problem. Um, yeah, I think that we, we probably do give them a hard time and we, we don't actually think about what... I, th- I think he spoke about the, the amount of people that they service makes it, in terms of the number of customers, it has like one of the, the biggest in the country. We don't really think of these utility companies or se- semi-governmental co- companies or organisations in that fashion, really. Yeah. Um, and like I said, the, the only time that we sort of jump up and down and, and communicate with them is when we have an issue. So... It, it was it was interesting to sort of turn that turn that on it on its head a little bit, and I, I think one thing I'd certainly echo is having been around um, Tony for the day. That's certainly somebody who would be you know if you worked for him, you'd be very clear on what your your main job was, and that a hundred percent was it has to be about you know, the customer experience, the the, the customer satisfaction, yeah. and, and actually everything else is almost secondary to that. Where, how everything in terms of technology is all geared around the customer experience the customer satisfaction and actually if you if you're a, you're an org, any organization if you have that real top line objective that's a really useful thing to have isn't it because you can yeah. be really laser focused in on that it's interesting actually just you know to add to that um, one of the things that they will evolve over time especially when they've got a data led strategy is to improve the communication that they've got with their customers in the end and if you think about it they're in a lose-lose situation at all times, right? Yeah. So they provide perfect service and basically no one cares. And then there's a problem. <laughs> and then they then they hear from people pretty quickly. And then when they fix the problem, they hear from people again because they're digging up the road and disrupting their lives. And it's basically, they, they just can't win. Now, if, however, their customers had real-time access to... Uh, their own dashboard, really, which said, actually, here's everything that's going on in the Thames network. And Thames Water are doing that. They're, they're, they are working on a new application for, for end customers to, to have a complete visibility on... Right, that transparency that, yeah, piece. Yeah. And so they, you know, customers in the end will understand that there's an awful lot of complexity yeah. behind basically just turning on a tap. So. Will, will they, though? Or, well, yeah. it's funny. It's funny. <laughs> Tony, Tony might not appreciate me saying this, but after the interview off camera, I said, so, so are your customers now happy? And he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the default position, yeah. I think, if you're in that well, kind of business. The, yeah, they face the problem. The, most, most, most companies don't, is that the only acceptable thing is 100% uptime, and even then your customers aren't going to run around yeah. telling. So if you had any other areas of, of, of business or companies that you use or stuff like that who provided that level of uptime, you wouldn't shut up telling friends, family about how good this was. Yeah. When it's a utility company, it's like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Just to give some like idea of, you know... The- they're they're doing what they're saying here, Thames Water. This isn't a load of sort of PR fluff to try and make it look like they're they're engaging with digital. Like one of the initiatives we spoke about was um, something they called the Spring Program, which was a years long mission, which involved loads of like huge technology players like Wipro and Accenture all coming together with Thames Water to deliver a new CRM and billing platform, which you know the end user wouldn't bat an eyelid to. But this is something that probably Im- improves their customer service by you know a few percentage points but it cost 150 million pounds and took a number of years and a, a huge commitment from a number of people within that company to do and they, they finished the final migration onto that platform 
at the end of December just gone. So it's a huge amount of work that no one really knows anything about and it costs a, ho- a whole load of money. It's that kind of thing where you realise the challenges that these guys are under. Yeah, right? absolutely. And if they'd actually been talk, if they had an app already through which they could talk to people about yeah. this, this work that they were going and they felt able to be transparent about it, think how much money they could have saved on uh, PR and communications people. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's, that's maybe that's an upside. We are very expensive. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, let's wrap up on this one. Um, as I said earlier, you can see the sort of full um, feature written by me and um, all the videos involving involving all um, Thames Waters Technology Partners on DigitalBullet.in. It's well worth a look. But don't go away, listener. We've got some fascinating input coming up from Richard Brown, CTO of blockchain firm R3. After this. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights, and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Subscribe now at digitalbullet.in. To those of you with a keen interest in blockchain and the deployment of this technology, Corda, as one of the foremost open source blockchain platforms in enterprise today, will probably be familiar to you. Corda was created by R3 and is enabling direct and secure transacting for hundreds of businesses around the world. Now, Richard Brown is R3's chief technology officer and... Because of that, one of the architects behind Corda, and he believes this technology has the potential to impact entire markets, not just improve single organizations. I started off by asking Richard about this and why he so passionately believes in the power of blockchain to make a difference at this level. It's a good question. And I guess there's always the danger of, you know, you should be worried by someone who looks like they've got religion about something that they previously didn't have. But for me, it was, I guess it was back in 2015 when, when, when we at R3 sort of began our journey and, um, and, and did the work that led to the creation of, of what is now Corda, our open source blockchain platform. And it was, it was when we were looking at, you know, what is the essential thing that platforms like you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum and the public blockchain space, what's the essential thing they've achieved? And it seemed to be that they could bring parties who wanted to transact with each other, but who didn't fully trust each other, bring them into consensus about things they cared about. Now, obviously, in, you know, in, in, in a public network like Bitcoin, it's how many Bitcoins there are or, you know, and who owns them and so forth. But it made us think, it made us ask the question, you know, you know what, if, what if you could apply the same principle to bring parties who wanted to transact with each other for any purpose into consensus. Could that unlock, you know, because what you might call the, the, the holy grail, that IT traditionally has been used to um, optimize individual firms, you know, the ERP revolution, the HRM revolution, all these applications and systems that were delivered, de- developed and delivered over the previous decades. And, and so the idea, you know, the thing that made me realize that this could be different was what if you could achieve the same thing, you know, applications that understand the business processes of markets, but deploy them um, in a distributed fashion amongst the participants in that market without having to introduce a new central intermediary or introduce a new central party to run it but instead people were able to transact directly peer to peer and between themselves. You know, maybe we could finally move to the move from the world of firms optimizing themselves to, to industries optimizing themselves instead. So guys, we're talking about open source blockchain here and something that we all sort of know is, is hugely um, exciting and, and, and kind of high potential in, in the enterprise world. What what do you think open source platforms like Corda can offer to markets? I mean, Richard called it the holy grail in there. I mean, it's it's yeah. quite a big statement, that, isn't it? Well, I mean, essentially what they're proposing is um, standards, yeah. <laughs> kind of, in that if you want to unlock the potential of this thing, everyone's got to agree really on how it works. Um, that's always been the problem so far. You've got a number of different parties who are all trying to develop 
different use cases and coming up with slightly different engineering solutions to make those work. And in the end, that's probably the, the, the primary delaying factor for any of this actually really taking root. Do you think um, open source is the way to go then? Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. Like yeah. In, in, in the end, blockchain should just become the medium through which competent entities uh, deliver great services. And they should be measured on the back of how good they are at those delivering those services not on you know how well that they're they're able to engineer the the you know the basic rails upon which those things are running um maybe these guys have got the solution maybe that will will, will unlock all of this and as he says the the main benefit of that is not going to be in cryptocurrencies and things like that that's basically a get rich quick scheme yes. as far as i see it um, maybe i'm being a bit cynical there but it's it's actually going to be how it fundamentally impacts industries as he's talking about where, where you can streamline, vastly streamline, uh, the complex transactional processes. And that's not just money, that's contracts, yeah. that's um, all sorts of stuff. So, yeah. James, can you see a future where, you know, rivals, basically, in markets and industries are committing to sort of a common cause, whether it's an open blockchain sort of platform like this? Do, do, do you, we, you know, we see collaboration a lot, a lot more these days, don't we, between rivals, but this is, a, this is taking that to another level, isn't it? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's a... There's a a battle to be won by which blockchain it is or which stable coin is going to be used. So I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. But I, I do think it's in in five to ten years it, that is something we, we will see uh, more and more. Because I just think as we, 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 we see more use cases and more proof of concept, that actually it will be something that is demanded by, by consumers and, and, and businesses alike, actually, because it is a... As Brom said, a far more streamlined, a far more effective way of whereas paying for goods and services or developing contracts or, or, or any of those things that traditionally have been very sort of complex things to do. It takes so much of that complexity away mm-hmm. that actually I, I, I think that it, it will. But I, I, I think we're a little bit away in terms of... How long that's going to take? I still think there's some work to do. There. I think that's a general problem with blockchain, isn't it? We're still we're still not 100 percent sure on on exactly how this is going to play out. Something else I was interested to get Richard's thoughts on was was blockchain's perception in industry and whether there was an imbalance between between hype and, and application. Um, here's, here is he on that topic. It's interesting because it does seem almost maybe not uniquely, but it does seem you know, quite rarely as a technology that it is simultaneously very hyped and 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 yet there's also maybe maybe because of that there's also um, a lot of, of questioning and even cynicism in, in some quarters and to be frank you know i think some of that is deserved the, the the industry in quotes i think as a whole has in certain quarters oversold the technology or tried to apply it to problems to which it's not well suited whereas and you know i'd like to think that the problems we're solving or that our clients are solving on top of our platform um, are good fits perhaps again because we had that you know, we had that 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 unique opportunity to design a platform to meet some requirements rather than carbon copied from something else. Um, so, so, so there's, there's definitely that. There's also, I think, the case that um, whenever there's a new technology, especially one that seems to have been hyped, you get a lot of a lot of inbound, a lot of people wanting to use it, and you have to, you have to spend a lot of time really trying to figure out, you know, who of them, which of them are following fashion, and which of them really have a problem that this technology is well suited to fix. Having a problem, the technology is suited to fix. That's that's the real sort of crux here. Rom, do you, do you think blockchain's been oversold in the last few years? Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like one hundred percent. I mean, it's been not, obviously it's been knocking around for years now. Yeah. And the the principle on paper of it as a transformative 
piece of technology has always been there and we're still kind of waiting really it's the, the, there will be certain key milestones i suppose and i still i don't know i'm no expert but it feels like it's we're still a way away from from really seeing this actually impact people like us uh, you know on the end of things the day that um, um you know sorting out a house purchase or a mortgage doesn't take like nearly two months or something will be the day that I realize that actually some of these things are actually um, beginning to work because um, there's less bureaucrats yeah. shuffling bits of paper Get, around getting rich from it let's call it what it is all, all that and that actually might be the reason it still gets it still takes ages because there's an awful lot of resistance a lot of very specialized and well-paid people who uh, enjoy sitting in the middle of, of Mid- people who would otherwise yeah. be transacting seamlessly. So. Middlemen make a hell of a lot of money, yeah. and this is and one of the promises or claims of, of of good blockchain is that actually that will take that away. So we're going to find huge resistance to it if yeah, if indeed probably. that is the case. And what I think what you're saying, Rom, is that the moment it it becomes a, a, a has a, or has a real impact is when we kind of stop hearing about it when, when it's just yeah. accepted as like part of the. It's a protocol. We yeah. want it to be a protocol that yeah. everyone understands and shares, right? And then. Yeah. That said, there will be certain industries where I think we'll start to see some real things happening really soon. In particular, um, logistics as a as a sector where you're using blockchain to reliably track and trace vast quantities of stuff yeah. shuffling around the world. That that you can see as being you know use cases. But then even then, they're going to start deploying technologies that are um, proprietary, perhaps to them and it's going to be a competitive landscape and even then maybe that's part of the problem because we're not sharing this stuff but um generally speaking yeah i, I think i think my senses were still a way away and yes it has been hyped yeah now yeah we, we do have a lot of blockchain champions obviously we hear a lot from them and uh you know that they 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 argue that it's potential for good. It's potential for really sort of positive change in society is big. James, you you spoke to somebody in the, in this field, Charles Hoskinson, who was mm. um, one of the co-founders of it, the Ethereum network. Do you want to just talk a bit about you know what that piece was about and how blockchain can be for good? Sure. I mean, Charles is a is an interesting guy. He's got a. Um... <laughs> Just thought of as a bit of a maverick, in, 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 but actually, he was first class. I spoke to him for about an hour while he was at the um, the Davos event a couple of, a couple of months ago, and actually, you can can see where he's why he's got where he is at such a young age because you know first and foremost, he's a good salesman. Like I came off the call thinking, yeah, let's have some of that. But <laughs> you know, and I, I, I wrote an article in last month's in last month's publication about some of the work he's doing in Africa, and he's very passionate about. The, the the potential for blockchain to do some you know some real positive things for huge amounts of, of society particularly in this case in Africa so he's working with or you know having many many conversations with the government of Ethiopia in this case in particular he works with many governments and stakeholders and companies in Africa but a lot of what we spoke about was the work he's doing in Ethiopia at the moment where um, and this is this is true of a lot of the developing world where, where where people have to queue in the streets for hours and hours to pay utility bills, for example. You know, they have these the, these places where they can do it. And of course, his argument is that actually in, in, in those countries, there's, in terms of smartphone adoption, actually it's quite high. Um, and there is the technology, in, in this case, he's talking about, the, you know, a, a, a blockchain platform where people could just do this on their phone. So he's in... Um, conversations to to develop pilots in in Ethiopia and to begin with it would be in Addis Ababa which is the capital city where there's about four million people 
to to work with those guys um, to to develop these blockchains where people could pay their bills instantly, for example. And it does seem absolutely ridiculous, of course, that people are queuing in the street for hours and hours at a time when there is this technology that would allow them to do it instantly, of course. Yeah. So that's that's one of the very small pieces that, that, that he's doing around in Africa. And of course, when, when it gets put to you like that, you think, well, of course we should be doing that. I mean, the, yeah. the alternative seems utterly ridiculous, especially bringing it back to what's going on now in these times where we're supposed to be socially isolated. I mean, queuing up in the street for hours at a time doesn't yeah. seem like a particularly good or, you know, in, in terms of your health, a particularly clever thing to be doing right now. Yeah, I think it is logistics and it is financial services where, you know, we see the, the biggest potential. And I think we've got another another piece, the second part of the interview with Charles coming up. Yeah, well, the, it, I, it's the first time I've ever used an interview and done a two-part, but as I said, he's a, he's a big talker and, you know, he's an interesting character. So um, the, 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 the bit that's online now, digitalbullet.in, if anyone's interested in going <laughs> and reading that, is, is very much about this sort of blockchain for good, in, in particular in Africa. But, you know, there was so much on the cutting room floor, so to speak, he, you know, he puts, you know, various crypto coin... Uh, companies on blast for you know d- disgracing the industry and stuff like that and so that that will be coming up in, in our in our in our next issue but he talks about you know blockchain more uh in in a general sense and also his cardano stable coin which he's got um yeah he's got some pretty interesting opinions as, a, as an interview he's perfect because yeah. he's got a lot to say he's pretty forthright says what he thinks it's perfect and it? richard brown from arthur is the same as well so you know Thanks to Richard for his time. Okay, guys, right, you might find yourselves with a bit of spare time on your hands uh, right now. So please don't forget to go and read issue 14 of our magazine. James has just um, primed it nicely for you there. It's a really good issue in our other podcasts, long-form articles in audio form, and Fragmented Reality, our series where we bust the buzzwords in enterprise tech. But that is quite enough for today. Thank you, Romilly. Uh, No, no, thank you. I'll see you in a few months. Yeah, see you (laughs) then. Thank you, James. No worries at all. And thanks to you, listener, for tuning in. We'll speak to you soon. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Log into digitalbullets.in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.